Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode 500 of the Creative Pen podcast which is very exciting and I'm recording this in the final week of July 2020. So the title of today's show, I'm not doing any news or anything, I'm just doing the episode 500 and uh, so the title is Writing and Business Lessons Learned from 500 Episodes and 11 Years of the Creative Pen podcast. I never thought I would do this for 11 years. It's very weird. Time flies indeed. So the first episode of the Creative Pen podcast was released on 15th of March 2009. So I had a couple of non-fiction books out. The International Kindle had not even launched. There was no empowered indie author movement as we know it today. I was living in Ipswich, just outside Brisbane, Australia, and I worked as an IT consultant implementing SAP Financials, which is a, like a software package, at a large mining company. <laughs> How things have changed. So I'm now a full-time author and podcaster with over 30 books, fiction and non-fiction. I live in Bath, UK, and I'm part of a growing independent author scene full of empowered indies. And we have more opportunities than ever before, and it truly is the best time to be an author. I should say I also I got married in August 2008 so Jonathan and I are coming up to 12 years of marriage so happy to say that hasn't changed <laughs> that has remained the same so in this episode I'm going to share some of the biggest lessons I've learned over the last 11 years and include clips from podcast episodes that have helped me and might help you on your own author journey some are craft and some are business and basically, I just wanted to share some words from people. Obviously, this is why it's taken so long to prepare this episode, but I hope you enjoy it. So this episode will cover number one, write what you love. Number two, it's okay to suck in your first draft. <laughs> Editing is the process that will turn your book into a finished product. Three, we are independent authors. We create and license intellectual property assets. Four, all long-term book marketing comes down to one thing. Five, turning pro and long-term thinking, the mindset of the professional author. And six, next steps, what's changing for the creative pen? So today's show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons who support the podcast with a few dollars a month through patreon.com forward slash the creative pen. Now, patrons get an extra Q&A audio every month, bonus audio, and also 10% off my courses. So thank you, patrons. I really appreciate it. Those of you who've supported the show long term and new patrons. And of course, all of you who support the show by rating it and sharing it and telling people about it. All of this helps me continue podcasting. Thanks also to my long-term listeners and to the long-term sponsors of the show, Kobo Writing Life, draft to digital Ingram Spark, and more recent sponsors, Findaway Voices and Pro Writing 8. All of you help me continue podcasting. So let's get into it. Number one, write what you love. 
So in episode 16, way back in June 2009, I interviewed Tom Evans, back then known as The Bookwright, about writer's block. Up until that interview, I had only written non-fiction, and I was afraid of writing fiction. I didn't think I had a block, but I clearly did. (laughs) And I realised it as part of this discussion, and you're going to hear that clip in a minute. The block was based on my education and my background. My parents were teachers, my mum was an English teacher, and I had a master's from the University of Oxford in theology, so I was steeped in this literary tradition. I thought I had to write something literary, whereas my guilty pleasure and what I read like every day as my escape from the day job was binge reading thrillers and watching action movies. And even though I don't have to escape my day job now, I still binge read thrillers and watch action movies. We can't help what we love, right? So once I realised that I could just write what I love to read instead of something others thought was worthy, I was off and writing. I started writing Pentecost, which I re-edited and retitled as Stone of Fire in 2012, and I now have uh, 18 novels plus short stories and counting. So I didn't have such a good mic setup back then, so it's a bit breathy, but I think you'll find this clip interesting. Now you're making me think. <laughs> I'm just thinking about something about myself, for example. I've written three non-fiction books now and I have a blog and I do a lot of writing and I'm quite confident in that. But I feel like I almost, I can't write fiction. You know, that's kind of in my head as something I can't do. And maybe there's other people who are listening who might feel that way. Are those examples of blocks or are they not blocks? You know what I mean? I guess I'm trying to get to how people can deal with what they're feeling. Now, I don't know, have you got any children? Have you ever told stories to children at night in these two no, and nephews? <laughs> no, and I don't. I, I don't have children either, but uh, well, have you ever made things up? Yes, I mean, yeah, and I think I you could, but I think I could write it, but it, I'm just not doing it. <laughs> okay, so first, the big thing you've got to do, there's two things you need uh, when you're going to write fiction. You want to have to make a point, so you're going to say, well, what this fiction isn't just some yarn I'm going to spin out. It's going to make a point that's going to make a difference. So you've got what I call meta-constructs behind the book, things that you want to get over. And also, you've got something that you want to get through yourself. So you've got a personal motivation to get the book written. Now, that could just be a sense of pride, or it might be, for example, I'm halfway through, or more than halfway through, a book called Soul Wave, which uh, explains uh, high-level concepts on cosmology, evolution, consciousness to people. And I could write a scientific book about that, but it'd take me a long time to do research and to back everything up. So I'm finding it a lot easier just to write the whole thing as a story. And as a metaphor, what happens, not only does it allow you to be completely creative, but you can also get points across to people at an unconscious level, which has a much deeper resonance. You know, like books like Who Moved My Cheese and that sort of thing, and The E-Myth, all written in that sort of style allow you to get very deep concepts over at a very simple uh, level. That's fascinating. Must stop talking about me. <laughs> and, um, you know, but I think a lot of people listening will have similar issues to, I guess, what I'm talking about and what you're saying, you know, resonates with me. So it's very valuable. So it's fascinating to hear me say that I can't write fiction. <laughs> it's weird hearing myself back then because I'm clearly a different person. I hope that encourages you. But a couple of other comments on this. Back in 2009, I didn't do a personal introduction to the show. In fact, I think it took about four years before I did. 
And I actually said there, I must stop talking about me. And I thought podcasting was all about the interviewee and I didn't understand the idea of know, like and trust and how that principle works. And what I've realised is that podcasting and in fact everything we do is about a personal connection with the host over the long term, as well as the useful things you might learn in each episode. And I needed to lean into being me, but I certainly wasn't confident enough to do that back then. I didn't think anyone would be interested in my journey. And I'm kind of upset that I didn't record an introduction for all those years because I don't have anything in audio that shows where I was at that point in the journey. I did do a few videos back then, but they would certainly, they were more prepared. And not that I wasn't honest, but I didn't share all my difficulties and problems as much as I would do now. You know, I share with you what's going on. So, you know, as I said, I didn't think anyone would be interested in me. And the same applies to your books. Um, Your readers are interested in you. So share from your personal experience in your emails, your marketing, your pictures, and also in your writing. And that's part of our finding our writer's voice is really just tuning into who we really are and sharing that in our words, whether it's through our characters or through other things. So if you're starting out, I hope this snippet encourages you because yeah, back then I was finding it so hard to move into fiction and now I can't imagine not writing stories. I have so many I want to write, so many in my queue, like literally in my to write queue, there are about 20 different folders with all these different things. And then I I just kind of move them up and down the queue when I decide to write them. So yeah, I just needed to get through that initial block and start writing. The other thing, just to give you an update on Tom, Tom has written a lot of books since 2009, and he's also a very popular meditation guide on Insight Timer. But he only published, like he mentioned the book Soul Waves back then, and he only published it in 2020. And it's interesting because he's published loads since then, but that book for him needed a lot of wrangling, and I know it means a lot to him. And I've been on his podcast, The Zone Show, quite recently actually we talked about creating your own future and uh, that book for him I know is super important so yeah you can check out Tom Evans. Number two it's okay to suck in your first draft editing is the process that will turn your book into a finished product and it's so funny revisiting all this because I feel like I didn't know these things and when I write them down now it feels obvious to me But the reason I wanted to share these kind of pivotal moments is because when I learned these things, my author life changed. So I used to listen to a lot of podcasts before I started my own. Of course, they weren't called podcasts back then. They were more like downloadable audio. But I used to love Mer Lafferty's I Should Be Writing, which started in 2005 and is still going. Mer is a Hugo Award winning author and podcaster and focuses on the traditional publishing path on her show although she is a hybrid author and has done all kinds of interesting books over the years. So you can still check out I Should Be Writing. Obviously, all of us are listening tastes change over the years. And I I listen to different shows now than I did back in 2005. But certainly starting out, I used to listen to I Should Be Writing all the time. So this episode went out in November 2009 during my first NaNoWriMo. National Novel Writing Month. So obviously I'd had that chat with Tom and I was like, right, how do I do this? I'll sign up for Nano. So I was learning so much about writing and editing and discovering that the journey of a novel is very different to that of a non-fiction book. 
you also do your lessons learned, don't you, on your podcast, I Should Be Writing. You talk a lot oh, about yes. things you've learned, which I really appreciate and, you know, really recommend that podcast to people. One of the things you did recently, I think, was It's Okay to Suck, <laughs> which yes. I thought was brilliant. Maybe you could just talk a bit about that. Well, I think a lot of people, it's something about writing, and I believe it's that we all use words every single day to communicate. And that makes people think that if I can tell you about the funny thing that happened to me at the grocery store today, then I can write a novel because I'm already using the words. So what's so hard about writing this novel? So everyone thinks they can write and then they sit down to do it. And, and everybody has this great idea, but they sit down to write it. And if you haven't been writing your whole life or have been writing for the past couple of years, then the story's probably going to suck. Mm. And I say that just as complete honesty. And I try to equate it to, say, sports. I mean, if you say, you know what, I'd like to run a marathon. Are you going to step out of your door and run that marathon? No, you'll get sick. You'll hurt yourself. That's when you start going out and running a little bit every day. And if you allow yourself to have a couple of bad days or a couple of races where you don't perform that well, you mm. know you'll be better the next time. And so I think when you let go of the this one perfect shining idea I have in my head is going to be the thing to get me famous and wonderful and money and groupies and all sorts of awesomeness and just say, I'm going to tell a story and it may or may not be good, but when I'm done, I will have gotten a little bit better at least. Mm. And I think when people allow themselves to just write the story and not worry about what's going to happen to the story afterward, that's when they really let themselves be writers and let themselves actually improve. It's like when they're thinking about it too much, they hold themselves back, or they put some sort of handicap on themselves. But when they just write and not worry about sucking or worrying about how good it is or wh where it's going to be published, then a lot better things happen. So these things seem obvious to me now, but back then I still thought that fiction writers sat down and streamed something perfect onto the page. And th there was definitely a lot more mystery around writing back then. There were not many blogs, not, you know, podcasts were not as they were now. Social media was only just starting to take off. And, you know, a lot of, there was just secrecy, I think. There was a sort of veil over this mysterious process of writing a book and realising that you could write something pretty bad, which, look, let's face it, if you're writing your first novel, it's going to be not great, you know, because you don't know all the things you need to know. But you can fix it up later with editing. And this freed me so much. And obviously, my first drafts are much better now because I know how to write a novel. But we all have to go through those first few books where we don't know what we're doing. And the advice you hear from writers later on in the journey, which is, oh, I only ever write one draft. I truly believe that is right. Those are writers who have internalized the process of writing a novel. And I think when you're just starting out, it can be very disheartening to hear that because you think, oh, well, I can't do that. So this realizing that I didn't have to write perfection with every sentence just helped me so much. And that NaNoWriMo, uh, so November 2009, I wrote 20,000 words. And probably only about 5,000 of those ended up in the finished book, Pentecost, which became Stone of Fire. But it took me on to the next step. And sometimes that's all we need. So I've got the journey of the first novel at thecreativepen.com forward slash first novel. Obviously, there's tons of links in this episode. So you need to go to the show notes if you want to find everything. 
And there are many more lessons on the writing craft that I have learned along the way and I continue to learn. I mean, even uh, recently, that interview with Will Storr that I did a couple of months ago about the character flaws, just a big penny dropped in that interview. I was like, oh, now I get it. Now I understand why character flaw can drive plot. But so certainly this is not the only lesson, but it's a lesson that made such a difference to my writing experience that I wanted to share. So those are the two main big aha moments in writing craft. Three, we are independent authors. We create and license intellectual property assets. So moving into business. So this lesson transformed my understanding of the publishing industry and also enabled me to see how writing books could make me more money over time as I built my backlist. It helped me move into thinking long-term and valuing my work. So like many authors, I used to be fixated on the book, the one finished product I could hold in my hand and say, I made this. And that is the artist's head. And it's super important to start there. But if you want to take this seriously as a business, you have to learn to think like a publisher and a business owner. Because as an author, you are an artist, for sure, that's where we start. But you also create and license intellectual property. And that is where the wealth is. And it's you know, you have to switch your head. And it definitely took a while for me for the penny to drop on this one. But once I understood it, I did not look back. And now I'm all about licensing rights and creating multiple streams of income. I know the worth of my intellectual property assets. They are the basis of my business as well as my art. And if you understand this, you are an empowered writer and you can sign contracts with publishing companies, with agents, with whoever you want to do business with but you understand what you're doing. And I definitely don't have an issue with people signing publishing contracts. And I have no doubt, I mean, I have signed publishing contracts for mostly foreign rights deals. And this is completely the right way to do things, but only when you understand the worth of your intellectual property and why a publisher wants your book. It's not about oh, well done, pat pat on the back, you're a great writer. It's a business transaction. <laughs> Publishers want to make money. That's their business. So what we have to consider is these two different heads. Now, if you understand your worth and you understand some of this, the information around intellectual property, around contracts, this can make a huge difference to your career and also your mindset and your confidence, I think. So if you don't understand this yet, this is not something I can obviously do in one fell swoop, but I have done lots of interviews on it over the years. Plus, here are some books that you can read. Selective Rights Licensing, Sell Your Book Rights at Home and Abroad by Orna Ross and Helen Sedwick. The Magic Bakery, Copyright in the Modern World of Fiction Publishing by Dean Wesley Smith. Closing the Deal on Your Terms, Agents, Contracts and Other Considerations by Christine Catherine Rush and also Rethinking the Writing Business by Christine Catherine Rush and The Copyright Handbook, What Every Writer Needs to Know by Stephen Fishman. Right, let's do some clips. Let's start with the definition of rights as I discussed with Orna Ross in March 2016. Let's start with the definition. What are publishing rights anyway? Publishing rights are essentially the permission you grant to other people to produce some kind of format of your work. 
So they are protected by copyright. If copyright law didn't exist, we wouldn't have publishing rights to sell. And a lot of work went into securing copyright as a, a, a right for authors. And as a result, we can turn our work into audiobooks, maybe have a movie made, reprint rights, even reprographic rights. You know, people who photocopy your work are supposed to pay you a fee. You know, so there are, there are just loads and loads of different rights. And essentially, the function of rights in publishing is to extend your readership. You know, why would you bother with publishing rights to extend your readership and to add to your bottom line? They can really quite significantly add to the bottom line. And I think authors, indies, have not given enough thought to rights, which is one of the reasons why Helen and I wanted to write this book. You know, taking a publishing rights perspective on your work is, I think, the, the sort of missing link for the indie author. And it's really important. Trade publishing trades in rights because it's a valuable commodity. And very often in trade publishing, the assessment as to whether to take on a book or not the rights department will be very key in that, and particularly for certain kinds of books, um, which lend themselves to rights more than others. But, you know, very often the, the rights department will be called and asked, what would the rights plan be? And that will affect how much of an advance and in investment a publisher is willing to put into a book. So I suppose we started off very much from the point of view, well, if it's valuable to trade publishing, it's valuable to indie publishers and to indie authors. But how we would might go about the business of selling them might be different. So really importantly there, you know, Orna says taking a publishing rights perspective on your work is the missing link for the indie author. And this is, you know, she said publishing trades in rights because it's valuable. <laughs> this is what they do. And I think if you understand that, if it's valuable to the publishers, then it's valuable to us. And but just an aside before we continue in the rights area, I wanted to do a little aside on friendship and author community. I was going to do a whole section on this, but I just wanted to sort of get into it here because at the beginning of the author journey, it's inevitable to feel alone and on the outside of what feels like an exclusive club. Like you feel inadequate. You don't think you can be friends with real writers. I certainly felt that for many years. But trust me, in fact, I still feel this. If I go to a conference, I can sometimes just feel it's this comparisonitis thing. You can't, it never goes away. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, you feel inadequate. But trust me, over time, as you write and you network online and off, you will meet true friends who really understand your creative side. So I met Orna Ross on Twitter in 2009, which is just incredible, really. Social media really kicked off. I jumped onto Twitter, started meeting other writers. And I was in Australia. Orna was in the UK. She guest posted on the Creative Pen blog back then. And I bought her creative meditation audios. I was still working in the mining industry and I literally had no author friends. I had a serious case of imposter syndrome, even after writing a few books. And this was back in the day when self-publishing was still had this massive stigma. And uh, so feeling like an imposter was kind of normal. And then Orna and I met in person when I moved back to the UK in 2011. I left my consulting job to try and make the writing business work. And we physically like almost bumped into each other at the London Library where at the time we both wrote which is a wonderful library by the way Bram Stoker wrote there and Stephen Fry is a member and you know it's a wonderful place it's a private members library a wonderful place 
So Orna and I went for coffee and became friends over the years. I was part of the early days of the formation of the Alliance of Independent Authors and I was at the launch at London Book Fair in 2012 when indie authors were still on the fringes of the industry and we were kind of looked at like weirdos in the corner, whereas now we're obviously authors now know that they have this choice. So Orna's taught me a lot over the years. She was definitely one of the first to tell me and to really talk about rights licensing for indies. And I've had her on the podcast multiple times over the years, so you will know her lovely Irish voice. And we also do a monthly show together at the Ask Ally podcast, the Advanced Self-Publishing Salon. And we're good friends and we regularly solve the problems of the world over drinks or dinner. And I just wanted to share that little story of developing friendship over a long period, because if you feel lonely right now in the author world, you don't know anyone or you just feel like, oh my goodness, I don't know where to start in meeting people. And if you're an introvert like me, you know, it was really good for me to meet people on Twitter first and then move it into real life. And I would encourage you to network and connect with people online. And just like dating, you, you have to ask people for a coffee in real life. Like, you know, like when I met Orna in person, I was like, you know, we said, oh, maybe we should get a coffee. And that is how you start making friends, obviously. And when you change and move into other industries like writing, you have to do that. Or if you're at a conference and you can, you know, well, when we're back in the world again, (laughs) post-pandemic conferencing, then you can meet people and start making friends. Obviously, true friendship takes a long time. But I think if you're taking your career seriously as a writer, then you do need friends and a community over time. So over the years, I've attended things like the Back on Rights, obviously. I've attended things like the Introduction to Rights Seminar at the London Book Fair, which is great, obviously aimed at the publishing industry, but anyone can go, as well as the Business Masterclass with Dean Wesley Smith and Christine Catherine Rush. I've been to that in Oregon twice. I was in Las Vegas last year. I've also read lots of books about it and generally upskilled myself. And this is the thing. Dean and Chris actually do quite a lot of courses on this type of thing, but you have to want to learn it. I've also done a number of rights deals over the years, including German, French, Korean language, as well as short story rights in a number of ways. And those are contracts that we have got and we have read and understood and figured out and then signed happily. So these are things you can do yourself. They're not necessarily things you need an agent for. Sometimes you might want to work with an agent. So for example, I would definitely work with an agent for various things if that became an appropriate situation. So what I'm saying is it's not about being resistant to opportunity. If you're an independent author, it's about this selective rights licensing that Orna certainly writes about a lot. So if this stuff feels a little out of your comfort zone still, don't worry, you can learn this stuff. And however you want to publish, you do need to know about it. If you are intending to sign a contract with anyone, an agent, a publisher, Hollywood, audio deal, Netflix deal, Amazon deal, whatever, you need to know this stuff. And it will save you a lot of money and time and heartache along the way. And in fact, you have signed contracts right now. If you're publishing on something like KDP or Kobo or Apple, you you sign a contract when you and, and you do a selective rights licensing when you upload your book. And in fact, if you're in KU, if you're exclusive, you have signed an exclusive 90 day thing for your ebook rights there in that language. So it's very important to understand. So back to rights. Here are two more of my mentors on the writing journey. Here's Dean Wesley-Smith on the metaphor of the magic bakery. I was trying to struggle with ways of explaining copyright. And so I came up with the magic pie. Just think of a pie. And each piece of anything you slice out of that pie 
is a license that you're licensing to someone to use part of. And so every time you write a short story or write a novel or write a nonfiction book or whatever, or anything that's copyrightable, it forms a pie. Just think of it as a pie. This is that ex- that metaphor, which I extend for an entire book. Um, <laughs> and you slice that out. So say you want to sell a short story to Asimov. So you take that pie, you cut out, and then you name that right, whatever you and the other person agree to, and that goes away. But it's still in the pie. Nothing's really sold. It's magic. And this pie stays there. And until unless you do something like selling it all rights to New York, that magic pie stays. And so then, of course, those of us who have a lot of stuff, I created a bakery. And also that helps explain selling a lot with magic pies. That's the stuff that's kind of fun is that if you realize, well, I've done one novel, why aren't I making a lot of money? Well, imagine a customer walking into a bakery and there's one pie sitting on the shelf. They're going to turn around and leave because everything else is empty. And that's what exactly what writers are doing. That's why these newer writers are going, oh, I only have one book and it should be selling. And I'm so disappointed. And I'm like, well, fill your bakery, <laughs> have something for your customers to purchase and have ways for them to come in. Mm. So that's that's how this whole magic bakery got about is because copyright really is magic. You can resell it and resell it and resell it. So I love Dean talking about that and this kind of idea that you have this bakery and you've got to fill it with all these different products and then you can license these slices of the pie and then the pie just magically has other slices, which is just fantastic. So I like that. But here's also Christine Catherine Rush, who is Dean's wife and business partner and just an incredible award-winning writer, editor, all round wonderful. <laughs> so here's Chris explaining why authors resist learning about copyright and contract terms. Let's come back to this very serious book on right. um, closing the deal on your terms. Now, I keep telling people to read this book and I wonder why people have an issue. Why are people so resistant? Why are authors so resistant to reading and empowering themselves with knowledge about intellectual property, copyright, contracts? Why do all these terms scare authors so much? They're artists. And artists, we seem to have this idea in our culture that artists are delicate flowers who need to be taken care of. And somebody will come in and take care of you once you've become an artist and they will, you know, make sure that your work gets properly presented to the world and all of that wonderful stuff. It doesn't happen. They will take care of you and they will take care of you and line their own pockets at the same time, which just is heartbreaking to me. But it, it happens over and over and over again. And really right. I hear writers all the time say, I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to think about any of this other stuff. I'm a writer so that I don't have to learn this stuff. And what they don't understand is they're only going to be a writer for a couple of years if they don't learn this stuff. Hmm. It's harder to be a freelance artist. I don't care what art form you're in than it is to have a day job and to do all of that basic good girl stuff that we were talking about. It's a lot harder because you don't have a set path you're on your own, you have to figure this stuff out yourself, and then you have to take responsibility for what you're doing. And that's why you find the book empowering, because you're one of those people who does do that. A lot of people find this whole thing scary. Yeah, again, it's such a great book. And I, I'm rereading it, my husband's reading it. <laughs> because, <laughs> because and, and I say to people like, you know, this type of information can save you a lot of money and also make you a lot of money if we just get down to money. But one of the things I think people still don't get 
is the idea of intellectual property. And I know it's a kind of basic level and huge in a way, but can you explain why one a book, when, when an author says, oh, I finished my one book, why that one book is not actually one thing? It's many things. And learning copyright isn't really hard. In fact, I have a free blog. And the, the book that you're showing is also on my blog for free. And if nothing else, go read the post called Knowing Your Rights. It's free and it just explains copyright in a real quick way. And that'll help people understand. Because what I'm going to talk about right now is that your copyright, Dean calls it a magic bakery and that the pie just keeps renewing, which my brain kind of has trouble with. I think of it more like when you write a book, you can sell what are called derivative rights. So that's what movie rights are and gaming rights and all of this. You license them, actually. You don't even sell them. If you sell them, you're making a mistake. So I think of it more like real estate. When you finish a book, you have built a house. And so that house, you can rent the house. You can rent rooms in the house. Eventually, that house, if you want to use the word magic, can grow into a hotel and you can have people in various rooms in the hotel. It can grow. That one piece of property can become an entire subdivision if you're creative enough. So if you learn how to leverage your copyright, then you can make a ton of money, even if your books aren't selling at Stephen King levels. So as Chris says there, you have to figure this stuff out yourself. And then you have to take responsibility for what you're doing. And that is just something I think is really important. And you need to look after yourself. You're the only one who cares about your career for the rest of your life. And, you know, if you speak to writers who've been going a while, many of them change agents, many of them change publishers, many of them pop in and out of the career over time. If you think long term, seriously, only you care <laughs> about you. Also, Chris talks about licensing. You know, license rights don't sell them. If you sell them, you're making a mistake. And this is where if you, many authors will be offered a contract, which might include world English for all formats, all territories for the life of copyright, which is, you know, 50 to 70 years after you die. And many authors, when they don't realise that, they'll just happily sign the contract. And that's pretty much done. That's done and dusted. That book is gone. And unless you got huge amounts of money for that, then yeah, I just wonder why many people sign those types of contracts. But often it's because of the not understanding the value of their work over the long term. And I love Chris's comment there. If you learn how to leverage your copyright, then you can make a ton of money, even if your books aren't selling at Stephen King levels, which is good news because let's face it, how many of us will ever sell books at Stephen King levels? I mean, I'd like to, and I hope I'm going to be going as long as Stephen King, who is, you know, I love a lot of his books. And what I like about Stephen King actually is he doesn't fit in a box and that's basically where I am. <laughs> I'm never going to fit in a box. I'm going to write all kinds of different books. And what that means is, like, as a reader, I do not read every single Stephen King book. And I, I mean, I try a lot of them and some of them I, they're just not my thing. But others I absolutely love and some of my favourite books of all time. So, you know, that's kind of how I want to be as an author as well, as sort of long term writing in different subgenres and selling and licensing. But here, learning to leverage your copyright, then you can make a ton of money. <laughs> and yes, we like money on this show. We certainly do. So Dean and Chris are definitely my mentors in the writing business. And this is another tip. 
Find people who you can model on your writing journey. Find out how they make their money, buy their books, listen to interviews they do, read their blogs, check out their social media, join their Patreon, go to their live events, as I have done with Dean and Chris in Oregon and Las Vegas. And I have, basically, I have all of their nonfiction books. I follow everything they do. I'm on Chris's Patreon and I do their courses and This is an investment in following two people who are fantastic authors, but also great business people who share openly what they're doing and have been doing this for the long term. And again, you're obviously listening to this show and, you know, many people email me to say they've done something that I've mentioned or whatever. But obviously, I have multiple streams of income. I'm also a podcaster. I'll tell you, I do things differently than some of the indie authors who make all their money from one type of book, for example. So you have to decide who you want to follow. Also, you can have a mentor without them officially being a mentor. I actually get emails quite a lot that say, can you be my mentor? And it's like, well, officially, no, I don't do mentorship. But unofficially, yes, I mean, you can do what I just mentioned. And I have never said to Orna or Dean or Chris, hey, will you be my mentor? Because that's not how it works. I don't believe that's how mentorship needs to work. I mean, obviously, there are some programs within work situations or whatever. But basically, you can, as I said, buy books, listen to interviews, go to courses, go to live events. You can learn and have mentors without actually having some official mentor relationship. So make sure you choose mentors who are achieving what you want to for the long term. Now, Dean and Chris and Orna have been in publishing for 30 plus years and they have survived the ups and downs of a changing industry. Now, there might be people you see who can hit the top of a list for a few weeks with one book. They might look like a success, but are they still around in five years or 10 years time? And I tell you now, as someone who's been around in indie Now, I first self-published in 2008, so 12 years in indie. Basically, I've seen a lot of people who disappear. So yeah, be careful who you choose as a mentor. And even if people are still around, are they doing things in the way that works for you? And are they achieving what you want for the long term? Four, all long-term book marketing comes down to one thing in the end. And I emphasize long-term here. (laughs) So in 2008, I self-published my first book, How to Enjoy Your Job or Find a New One, which I later updated and not rewrote, but I definitely updated it as Career Change. But that first edition, I had 2,000 print copies delivered to my house in just outside Brisbane in Australia, and they arrived in a lot of boxes and filled our lounge. I do not know what possessed me to order 2,000 books. But, well, clearly I assumed they would fly off the shelves and I would make money. And as they unloaded the truck and brought all these boxes, and there's the picture, if you haven't seen the famous picture of me standing in front of the boxes, go to the show notes for this and you'll see it. What's so funny is my face. I'm so proud and I'm holding the book and I'm in front of all these boxes. And then (laughs) I realised possibly very soon after that photo was taken, because in my eyes, I'm really sure. And then I realised I don't know how to sell these. (laughs) To be fair, most of those ended up in the landfill. But that moment of realising began my investigations into book marketing. So I started out with PR and press releases, which went very well, actually. I got onto TV and national radio and in the papers and press releases went very well. 
But I soon realised that it did not sell books. I mean, I was on national TV in the papers on the radio and I sold about 100 copies. Now, I did sell some sort of hand at events and I used to go to a networking thing, a sort of female business networking thing, and I got stalls. That's just not me. I also realised that I wanted to reach the big international book markets of the US and UK because there's only like 20 million-ish people in Australia and there's, what, 350 million or something in the US and 65, 70 million in the UK. So I was like, Yeah, I think I would rather do something that was more scalable than me hand selling a couple of books at a event. There's nothing wrong with that. If you enjoy that, fantastic. But I really wanted to do something that would reach these bigger markets. So I found my first mentor, Yarrow Starak, and discovered blogging, discovered podcasting. And Yarrow's Entrepreneur's Journey podcast and blog and courses, I started with his course on how to do all of this. And Yarrow is now at yarrow.blog, Y-A-R-O.blog. And again, I'll link in the show notes. Yarrow continues to be a mentor from afar. So of course, at the beginning, I listened to everything. I read his blog. I bought his course. I saw him at events. And and in fact, both of us are such introverts. We didn't speak to each other for quite a long time. But there's a nice picture on the show notes where we eventually hung out in person as more peers, but I certainly didn't feel like a peer with him for many years. And Yarrow continues to be a mentor from afar, and I followed his business ventures, his investments, his personal travels, and how he's pivoted his business over the years. My own author blueprint is directly modelled on his blog profits blueprint with his knowledge and encouragement, of course. And I have interviewed him several times, and we've talked about a lot of things, including time and money freedom, as well as travel, which we both love. We have also both tried pretty much every kind of marketing out there. And Yarrow's been doing this since 2005, so certainly longer than I have. And a few words from Yarrow coming up. Now, Yarrow isn't about book sales. He's more about course sales and affiliate sales and other things. But small business marketing is very similar to book marketing for nonfiction particularly, which I'll talk about in a bit. So my book, How to Market a Book, which is in its third edition. I mean, and some people are like, are you going to update it again? I might, but to be honest, it's about 95% good. So I've no plans to update it anytime particularly soon, but it contains most of what I've learned over the last 11 years, 12 years. And I've experimented with a lot of things and watched tactics that worked disappear. So things that used to work disappeared, new ones have arrived. And in fact, if you listen to the entire podcast backlist, which is quite a commitment, you will hear many of them over the years. And it's so funny if you pop back and kind of listen to something that might have worked in 2011, for example. I think it was 2011, people just put books at 99 cents and hit bestseller list. And that just doesn't work anymore, obviously. Or back in the day, you could put a book for free and you were still visible in the bestseller list, which is just, again, crazy now if you think about it. But it's hard to keep up with new things all the time. You have to try things and experiment. But at some point, you have to settle on a marketing ecosystem that works for you. And that doesn't take all your time in learning new things or like trying to figure it all out. So I talk about this more in Your Author Business Plan mini course, and I share more details there. But right now, this is basically what I'm doing for each of my brands. And I'm recording this for posterity as much as hoping it helps you, since it will be interesting to see what changes over time when I revisit this. And this is another reason I love blogging and podcasting is because it's nice to kind of go back and, well, like I shared earlier, like some of these clips, it's kind of funny to listen or read what you did back in the day because life moves on. So here's what I'm doing for each of my brands. 
so non-fiction under Joanna Penn. I currently have 12 books in a series, which is books for authors. 11 of them are aimed primarily at authors. There's a lot of cross-selling. If you have multiple books in a series, they are going to cross-sell, or books that are aimed for non-fiction at people who like the same stuff. I also have lots of editions. So I have workbook editions as well as ebook, print, large print and audio and paperback and some hardback for many of them. I have licensed some in other languages. So I've licensed French and Korean at this point and I've also self-published several in German. So there is a decent sized bakery as per Dean's comments above and all of these books are wide and I also sell from my own store through payhip.com forward slash the creative pen. And I have a permanently free book, Successful Self-Publishing. You can get that free in ebook. It's also available on YouTube as a free audio book. It's also in print. So that book, just as a permanently free book, I can always advertise that. People download that. And if they like my voice and my info, they potentially buy others, book, other of the books and find the podcast and stuff. So I promote that permanently free book quite regularly. My primary form of marketing is content marketing with this podcast. And also my free author blueprint email list, thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint, as well as appearing on other podcasts. Plus, we also run Amazon ads that run all the time on all formats of the books. I've basically stopped blogging now, preferring this audio first marketing. But each episode of the podcast also has the transcript and notes like this. I wrote this first. You can tell I'm obviously reading some of it and then I'm extemporizing as well. But I write a lot of the material before doing the podcast. So the blogging is still there in terms of the episode of episodes that I do and the notes that go with the shows. I'm still active on Twitter at The Creative Pen after so long and occasionally at facebook.com forward slash The Creative Pen. I've done some Facebook Lives recently and I Twitter is still probably my primary network, but literally I don't spend much time on it anymore. I'm not hugely into social media marketing anymore. I needed it at the beginning, but it's not so effective for me now in terms of time spent. Okay, fiction under J.F. Penn, Joe Francis Penn. So I have three main series. I have 10 arcane action adventure thrillers, which are kind of the Dan Brown style thrillers. Three Brooke and Daniel psychological thrillers, which are my London books, as they were known. I have three Map Walker fantasy adventures. So that's a trilogy, the Map Walker trilogy, and a number of standalone novels and short stories. All these books are wide and in multiple formats. I have some of them now in hardback and large print, but they're mostly in ebook, a paperback, and them in audio. I'm just getting the Matt Walker audios done. I have email list sign up where you can get Day of the Vikings, which is set in the British Museum. At an exhibition I actually went to on Vikings and I had this idea, what if neo-Vikings invaded the British Museum to steal this particular sword? So it's basically about neo-Vikings and the British Museum. It's pretty cool. You can get that for free, jfpen.com forward slash free. And I also have a great ARC team, so an advanced review team. And once people are on my list, they'll get invited to join that over time. I have a permanently free first in series, which I advertise a lot, a stone of fire, and I run promotions on that. I'm also using BookBub pay-per-click ads, which I really like for the first in each of those series running to different stores in multiple countries. So I'm advertising to the wide stores. I think the main difference, I've been thinking about this a lot, is that the wide mindset is less about ranking than it is about money. <laughs> so 
if you sell a first in series or get a first in series book or first or second in series book into the hands of someone on Apple or Kobo or Google Play, then you see quite different results than if you're trying to do KU and and Amazon and stuff like that. So I feel like there's an ecosystem that's starting to settle for me with JF Pen, which I'll probably do a separate show on at some point. But I do have some Amazon ads on the fiction, but have caps on that. And I mainly use auto ads, to be honest. I don't want to spend my life doing ads. I also much prefer BookBub ads, free booksy, bargain booksy, and even Facebook ads on the lesser promoted stores as the clicks are so much cheaper. And I care about income, not rankings, unless I'm doing a specific promotion where obviously sometimes it's nice to just push things up the charts, but I am far more concerned with sort of money coming into the bank accounts and selling books all over the world on all stores is more important to me. So I've also started a year ago the Books and Travel podcast as content marketing for the long term and just to satisfy my desire to talk about other things. So I love the Books and Travel podcast. You can find it on your podcast app. Certainly continuing to do that. I also, for social media, I use Instagram at jfpenauthor and facebook.com forward slash jfpenauthor. But I'm not very active on social media in general, as I said, anymore. And then The Sweet Romance under Penny Appleton. So I co-wrote the first three of these books with my mum. But then, as I shared on the podcast a few years back, we went our own ways because I am not a sweet romance type of girl. (laughs) I write darker fiction than my mum, but she loves these happy endings. So she's still writing on her own steam and we will have book five out this Christmas. It is called A Summerfield Christmas Wedding. So it better be out at Christmas. Now, because... I don't have the bandwidth to market another brand and my mum does not want to do any marketing. We have gone for the simplest option for people who don't really want to do marketing. So basically all the Penny Appleton books are in KU. I use the free days. So I basically every 90 days, I have a little reminder that says go in, schedule some free days, maybe do a free booksy on them. We also have one Amazon ad running on Love Second Time Around, which is the more senior book. So Love Second Time Around, the characters are retired, basically. And this is quite a small niche, but it's great. And we also have large print books, and these do really well. So essentially, I just have one ad running in the US and one in the UK that are auto ads on that book. And they're actually pretty good. I just have a look maybe once a week and just check it's not spending out of control. But those auto ads are doing quite well. So it's really low maintenance marketing and obviously I could push it a lot more if I spent more time on it. But as I said, I don't have the bandwidth and I'm helping my mum out and hoping she makes a few extra hundred a month, which she does. So that's really good. Mum isn't doing it for the money. She's doing it as her new career, I guess, in her 70s. So we're not going hard on marketing these books. I mean, once we have more books, once Penny has more books in general, I might do do more marketing, but quite happy with that right now. So that pretty much covers my marketing ecosystem. And of course, I do spike promotions as well. So for example, I might apply for a BookBub feature deal and then do other ad stacking around that. But a lot has changed in book marketing and a lot will continue to change. But one thing remains the same. And I think it will become even more important over time as the content tsunami continues to grow. So here are some clips, Yaro Starak and then Lindsay Baroka on this topic. Lindsay's episode was only a couple of weeks ago, but it made me think about this stuff a lot more. They have very different businesses, so it's a good range of perspectives. Yaro is a blogger, podcaster and sells online courses. And Lindsay makes her money from fiction sales. And they both say the same thing. I think 
The one element that hasn't changed is this idea of the cult of personality or a personal brand. And we've seen that just become more magnified with, you know, a YouTube personality or a and podcasting personalities, whatever. It's that sense of connecting with one individual. And that's especially in a sort of a coach client relationship or coach student or you know member uh, that becomes really important because I think what does happen in crowded spaces is if you're smart you start to ignore everyone except for the one or two people you really connect with you know there's the Joanna fans there's the Yarrow fans and they've they've carried with us since we you know first got discovered by them and that's something that you know it's a relationship you can't really replace that quickly, and they'll they'll always pay attention to you. So that's I, I'm a big fan of the the old uh, Kevin Kelly one thousand true friends concept. That simple idea you just need to find one thousand people who love your stuff and buy your stuff from this huge internet made up of over a billion people, and then that becomes your your core income base. You know your audience, your traffic doesn't have to be millions of views on YouTube or millions of downloads of a podcast or, you know, hits to your blog. It's just that core audience. And that's become more and more important to me as well over time. I've never forgotten early on when I started publishing books, I came across Kevin Kelly's article on 1000 true fans and the concept of just building your tribe one person at a time. And if you could get that many people, and some of them will tell other people, and you'll have less casual fans too. But I, I feel like that was very important to me in the beginning. And I feel like sometimes we lose track of that with all, we're always trying to get new readers mm. by all this advertising on Amazon. And I see people sometimes kind of lose focus of the fans they already have. And I try to not let myself do that. Like I just sent out a bunch of um, bonus scenes and a free short story with the new series I'm doing. And somebody emailed back and they were like, wow, that's so awesome. No author has ever sent me a free ebook. And I was like, really? <laughs> well, you get on some more email lists. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe they're thinking, you know, traditionally published and stuff. But I think even they'll have to do it. Really kind of cultivating the people that you can get and making sure to continue to make them feel like they're your best customers. There's a proven people that go out and buy your book at new releases. It's a little less daunting, too, I think, if you're just thinking, all right, one fan at a time, I'm going to build a fan base, and I'm going to treat them really well, instead of always just, and you know, you always have to try to get new people into, because things happen, you know, mm. people pass away, or people's tastes change, but I think if you really focus on giving a lot to the people who really have proven that they love you, and they love, well, they love your books anyway, I don't know <laughs> yeah. if they love me personally, you know, that... I think that's going to have to be the focus as it continues to be more competitive as these AIs you're talking about start writing uh, thrillers and uh, epic fantasy, you know, really connecting with your people by giving them what they love. And I don't necessarily share a lot personally about what I'm doing. Every now and then again, they get a dog picture or something, but I just try to give them the stories that they enjoy. So I think that's what we're going to have to do going forward. It's probably only going to get more competitive, but your people that really love your voice and the way you write and they're very maybe similar taste to you, they're out there. You just you have to do all this other stuff to find them. But once you find them, nurturing them and trying to keep them on board, I think that that's always going to be the way to have a solid career and to know that you have somebody to buy the next book that you put out. 
So I am obsessing more and more about 1,000 True Fans at the moment. It's also at the heart of the great book, Marketing Rebellion, The Most Human Company Wins by Mark W. Schaefer. And the quote, I actually put this in the Audio for Authors book, we're moving inexorably toward a subscription-driven, human-driven, emotion-driven, ad-free, funnel-free, big brand, loyalty-free world. So this to me is such an important quote. Subscriptions, human, emotion, ad-free, funnel-free, like people just want to connect. People want connection and fans love supporting the creators they know, like and trust. And this is why Patreon and Kickstarter and Buy Me A Coffee and direct sales are all rising in popularity and why social media continues to be popular and why podcasts are exploding because it's all about connection and that's what we need to focus on. I also think indie authors have been too fixated on trying to play the same game as traditional publishers when we don't have to. Why compete on the same huge mass market playing field? Why not just go build our own area just for our fans with all the cool, weird stuff that we like and they like and we can hang out and read books together and sell to our tiny corner of the internet? And that's the idea of a thousand true fans. And I think it's a real happy place as well. Like you create what you love, you attract people who love what you do and you make your living without having to compete with things that are designed for the mass market. And I really believe that the mass market is basically over and the world is fragmenting faster than ever. There are more and more media channels and places for people to congregate around things they love. Now, Chris Anderson talked about the emergence of the long tail way back in 2004, but I feel like many people still want to deny the reality of it and have some hope that a blockbuster might happen when it's actually rarer than ever. If you look at the book sales, for example, of big name authors who hit the bestseller list, the number you need to hit a bestseller list is tiny because people do all these different things now and the world is fragmented. And of course, I would love a movie deal and a runaway hit as much as the next author. Of course, I'd love to break out and have all that success, but I'm not going to spend my life pursuing that or defining myself by other people's definition of success. And of course, your definition of success changes over the years as you write more books and you settle into your career. But for me at this point, I want to return to my core value, which is freedom. Freedom to write what I want, when I want, and publish what I want, and make a living writing. I also want to travel when I want, (laughs) but that is impossible right now under pandemic conditions. But I have confidence it will return. But For me, it's always been about living a life that I want to live. I love work, probably realise this, I love working, but I want to work on the things that I love and that will help people and entertain people. And I don't ever want to do something that makes me feel miserable while I'm working again. So what is your definition of success for your books, for your author career, for your life? How can you create an ecosystem that supports that for the long term and attracts and keep your 1,000 true fans. Number five, turning pro and long-term thinking, the mindset of the professional author. So the life of a writer is a roller coaster of highs and lows of triumphs and launches and failure and self-doubt and imposter syndrome. And when I wrote The Successful Author Mindset, I wanted to share my own struggles along the way. And I still love about that book is that it's all so true. (laughs) just keeps coming back. 
and I share all my struggles and I share my journal entries and I do revisit that book sometimes because the creative cycle keeps turning and those feelings return book after book after book and they don't go away. You just learn to live with them. And there are a few books that stand out in terms of mindset issues. Obviously, my book, The Successful Author Mindset. (laughs) But two books by Stephen Pressfield, The War of Art, which a lot of people recommend. But the one I much prefer is Turning Pro. And this, to me, is a very important book. I usually read at least once a year. This year, I have already read it twice. Once in January, I tend to revisit it. in the. It's very, very short. It's really short. But last month in June 2020, during lockdown, I really started to, well, I think we all are, you know, in the pandemic, it's like, okay, what do I want my life to look like? And I reread Turning Pro as I reassessed what I want to achieve. And lots of reassessment during the pandemic is probably quite common. But I do recommend the book if you want to challenge yourself around your art and what you want to spend your life doing, because life is short. Memento mori, remember, you will die. (laughs) Turning hopefully later rather than sooner, but it is kind of inevitable. So Turning Pro will help you focus on what you want to achieve in your life. And in this interview from 2014, Steve talks about the moment he decided to turn pro. When I was trying to learn to be a writer and was falling on my face over and over and over, the reason I decided finally was that I was an amateur and I had amateur habits and I thought like an amateur. And what sort of turned the corner for me was just a, a simple sort of turning a switch where I just decided I'm going to turn pro. I'm going to think like a pro. And this is true. A lot of times I think of athletes are great models for this. One of the things about a, a professional athlete is they will play hurt, mm-hmm. right? They, whereas an amateur, you know, you sprain your ankle or something's wrong. You say, ah, well, I won't do it today, you know, but a pro goes every day. And I think that a lot of times the model for being a pro is just what we do in our jobs, like in our day jobs. We show up every day, whether we want to or not, right? We have to get a paycheck, right? But yet when we go into our, our works of passion, our novels or our books or whatever, we suddenly become amateurs and we think, wow, this is really hard. I'm going to, you know, go to the beach, you know, and we don't have that kind of hardcore professional attitude. Courage plays a lot, takes a lot of guts to do this. Patience is also very important, but be patient with ourselves, allow ourselves to, to fall off the wagon sometimes and to taking the long view is another aspect of it. Not imagining we can write our novel in a week and a half, right? And also, I like to think of it as a lifelong practice that it's not just one book, it's not three books. This is what we're going to do for the rest of our lives. This is what we do. This is who we are. And another aspect, I think, uh, of a professional, and this comes from the Bhagavad Gita, it's a kind of a mentor-protege story, a Hindu scripture, really, where the protege is Arjuna, the great warrior, and the teacher is Krishna, who is his charioteer, in other words, God in human form. So God is teaching mortal men. And one of the things that Krishna says is we're entitled to our labor, but not to the fruits of our labor. And what he meant by that is like, we finish a book, it goes out, it's published, and then we're like glued to the reviews. You know, are we going to get any uh, four-star reviews? Anybody going to give us money, right? And what Krishna is saying is that's not the way the world works. The satisfaction 
needs to come from the work itself, from doing the work itself. So good or bad, whatever the response to our work is, that doesn't matter. So I'm really thrilled that I've been able to interview Steve a couple of times over the years. And uh, you can find those interviews obviously in the notes or in the backlist. And even within those few minutes, Steve says so much that is challenging. And every year I have to ask myself, have I turned pro really? Or am I behaving like an amateur? Where can I become more professional? Am I paying too much attention to the fruits of my labour when I should be concentrating on the work itself? As Steve talks about Krishna saying, we're entitled to our labour, but not to the fruits of our labour. So basically, we are entitled to work on the things we love. What we're not entitled to is some kind of success. Like we can't control what happens when that book goes into the world. Yeah, we can try and do marketing and stuff like that, but just might be the wrong book at the wrong time or lots of reasons. But you can only take control of your own work. So I really recommend Turning Pro. Go and get it. It's short, like many of Steve's books, but it's intense. Now, in thinking about the long term, I also wanted to add these clips from the lovely Christine Catherine Rush, followed by Kevin J. Anderson, who both talk about the importance of thinking of your author career over the long term and how there will always be ups and downs. So these interviews were clearly recorded before the pandemic, but we're seeing an example of how things can change so quickly right now in these weird times. So here's Chris, followed by Kevin. One of the things I think indies need to do is they need to think long term and they're not. They're thinking next week or this subgenre is hot right now and I'm going to write it and, you know, I'm going to sell a million books on Amazon. Not thinking that everybody's writing that subgenre and people are going to eventually stop reading it because they're not writing from their heart. So indies need to realize that if they're in this, they're in this for the long haul. And the long haul isn't two years from now. The long haul is 20, 30 years from now. And their planning needs to be based on that. And that's hard to do, especially as you're just starting out or you need money or you took that plunge and you dumped your day job and you know now you're trying to earn money every day. That's a hard position to be. And you have to have you have to balance that day to day with the long term view what do you do when it takes 20 years? Well, it may well take 20 years. So don't quit your day job if you've got something. If you have a good year that a lot of money comes in, don't assume that next year is going to be the same. That uh, publishing is like a roller coaster. It gets up and down and up and down. And uh, it's similar to the music industry. If you have one hit, don't assume that your next one's going to be a hit. And so when you do have money, You need to save well, invest it, prepare for times when it's going to be a crash, and just don't think that it's going to keep going. I was just at the 20 Books to 50K conference in Las Vegas, where there were literally a thousand attendees, all of them ambitious indie authors, and and they got into it. And we're kind of in in gold rush days, and it's a big boom, and everybody's um, running big ad campaigns. Think about it that in industry-wide perspective, this is still like a new and disruptive part of the business, and it's changing a lot. And I talked to a bunch of the people who are at 20 Books, and I said, guys, you haven't had your first huge boom and bust cycle yet. A lot of them are still kind of on this big upswing, but and I'm not being a doom and gloom person, but that's just the way the industry works. Something's going to crash in some part of it, and you've got to be prepared for that. 
I kind of make the joke that my own my own career, I've crashed and burned and then picked myself up and then crashed and burned and then picked myself up so many times and resurrected my career. I call myself the doctor sometimes because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm the 11th doctor now or something like that. And I'm still going. I'm still publishing. I just made a really huge traditional book deal. And I've got a whole bunch of indie books that we're publishing. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, I'm now this very busy and happy professor at Western Colorado University where I'm teaching a publishing master's degree. It's just all kinds of things are happening. And these are all lightning rods that I planted. And you never know when something's going to strike, but you have to be ready for it. So that's all the lessons learned. So now we're going to talk about next steps and what is changing for me and a creative pen. So things have definitely changed as a result of the pandemic. I've had time to reflect on what I want to achieve, how I want to spend my time and what my definition of success really is. So in the last decade, I have turned pro, Stephen Pressfield would say, at running a non-fiction business. I've spent 80 to 90% of my time on the non-fiction side of things and it has been fantastic, but it's time for a change. I'm starting to have more confidence around my fiction and I want to give it more of my time. What could I achieve as J.F. Penn in the next decade if I gave that brand as much attention as I have given Joanna Penn? My husband, Jonathan, has also had time to think and we've talked about a lot of things on our daily walks along the canal during lockdown. The big change is that he is leaving the business to restart his own career. He is a statistical programmer in the medical and pharmaceutical industry. And let's face it, that is a useful place to be right now. He has also been underutilised in our business for a while. And work is not just about money anyway. It is also about meaning. The creative pen was always my business first, focused on my passions. And even though it makes enough income to sustain us both, it does not provide enough meaning. Of course, it's been a good five years. Jonathan left his last job in 2015 and helped me put in place great procedures and processes, including ramping up our investments, as well as using tools like 1Password and Dropbox, which make the business more robust. He set up my Amazon ads for the non-fiction books, and they basically run with very little intervention now. He took charge of my YouTube channel and did a lot of editing, photography and other brand work. We've done a lot of great research trips together, but it has served my career, not his. In our wedding ceremony back in 2008, we included words from Khalil Gibran. Stand together, yet not too near together, for the pillars of the temple stand apart, and the oak tree and the cypress grow not in each other's shadow. Jonathan has been in my shadow within the creative pen and it's now time for him to step back out and rebuild his career. I will stand alongside him and focus on my own and we will have our evenings and weekends and holidays together. I'm looking forward to doing more cultural research trips on my own and he's looking forward to some beach holidays. <laughs> we can manage both in this new phase of life. I wanted to talk about this openly as I know many of you dream of hiring your partner out of their job to join you in the writing business. My first goal as an author was always six figures as that would replace my income as an IT consultant. I achieved that in 2011 and left my job. My next goal was to hire Jonathan out of his job so he could join the business and we could both be free. 
I achieved that in 2015. But it turns out that my writing dream is not enough for both of us, and freedom was elusive as I created more of a job for myself, working longer hours with no paid leave and no sick pay. I've barely had a weekend off in a decade. Now I love what I do, but I need to put more sustainable practices in place. I need to learn to embrace the rest ethic, as Max Frenzel talked about in episode 492, and the structure of Jonathan's job will enable me to work his hours and make the most of time off. The world is also shifting in many ways, and I have always talked about the importance of multiple streams of income. Jonathan returning to a day job provides another stream of income to our household, and is about as different as writing and publishing as you can get, so we have increased diversity. I've also learned that I don't want to grow the creative pen. I am quite happy with being a small business. I still have ambition around income and creative goals, but I like the idea of the seven-figure one-person business, as discussed with Elaine Pofelt, and the seven-figure small idea, and there's an interview with me on that podcast as well as being a great show, and also how to be a successful company of one, as discussed with Paul Jarvis. So I am happy with the business being back to just me again, although to be clear, I have a wonderful team to help, thanks in particular to Alexandra, my wonderful VA, to Jane, my book cover and graphic designer, to Jesper for the podcast production, and to Jen and Wendy for editing and proofreading. I also have an accountant and other contractors who do specific jobs at different points. So technically it's not just me, but I do the creative work and run the business and manage everyone with no employees. So what does this change mean? Well, not so much for you, my wonderful podcast listeners. I now define myself as an author and a podcaster, as both bring me creative and business opportunity. I want to do more audio-first projects, so there will likely be more audio, not less over time. My podcasts are part of my creative body of work. Books and travel feeds my soul and the wanderlust of my listeners. I also love helping people and sharing the author journey, so I am committing to episode 600 of the Creative Pen Podcast, but I'm not going to promise it will be every Monday for the next two years. I'll be taking time off some months. For example, I have booked December out of my calendar, although of course I will do my annual roundup on the 31st of December, as I do every year. I'm also going to batch my interviews so I have more continuous time without interruption. In the next two weeks, I'll be recording interviews that will take us well into 2021 for both The Creative Pen and Books and Travel. I am busy. (laughs) So what am I doing to make space for more of JF Pen? I'm going to say no more. My first instinct is always to say yes, to speak in an event, whether online or offline, to build a course, to write another non-fiction book or update an older edition, to do another webinar, because I know how to make money that way. But writing fiction requires me to sink down into a deeper level, and I need longer chunks of time for that to happen. I'm not saying no to everything, of course. I will still speak at selective events, and I will still write non-fiction books, but the balance is changing. I will spend my next decade focusing primarily on my fiction career as J.F. Penn and also writing more non-fiction that relates to my fiction brand. Maybe the travel memoir I've talked about, maybe the ever-elusive shadow book that still nudges me now and then, maybe other things. 
So interestingly, even though 2020 has not turned out the way any of us expected, I did make Operation Evergreen my focus for the year. And much of what I wrote on the 1st of January still stands. Links to all this in the show notes, obviously. The pandemic has given me the time off that I needed and forced me to really think about things that have been percolating for a while anyway. And I have talked about a lot of this stuff. It truly feels like a new beginning. So I hope that you can also find a silver lining in this weird, weird time and that you have had time to think. So to end episode 500, I want to ask you a few questions. What were you doing in March 2009 when I started this show? What did your writing situation look like? What writing goals have you achieved in the 11 years since then? And you could reflect on the bigger picture, but this is a writing show, so your writing goals. If you haven't achieved the writing goals you wanted, then why not? Were they the wrong goals? Or do you need to refocus? What lessons have you learned along the way? And what is the silver lining in the pandemic for you? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Please leave a comment or tweet me at The Creative Pen or you can email me joanna at thecreativepen.com. I'd love to know what you think. So thanks for joining me on the author journey and thanks for your support of the podcast. I fully intend to keep creating for the next 11 years. But in the meantime, I'll be back next week with episode 501 because time marches on. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.